three, yeah. Good to see you this morning. Thanks for coming to church and um, being with us in this festive season. I know holidays have started and people are all over the place, but it's really good to be here and uh, to see you and to sing that thousand hallelujahs. I just thought, who wrote that? Hillsong? Was it Hillsong? Who? From Hillsong. What, what an anointed song. What a, what a gift, amen, to us to be able to sing that song. I just thought it was amazing. Um, my wife blessed me this morning as we're driving to church. As is our custom, we pray. We also pray other times as well. And um, she was just saying, uh, she was, which blessed me, if I can use this moment personally, she said, thank you for the clarity of this man's vision. And I thought, gee, that's an interesting prayer. Um, and she was just praying. Um, I didn't stop her. And she was saying that, uh, thank you that you are his vision, that um, everything we do has our vision as Christ as the center. Um, everything, mission, roots serving, the, 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 the center of this is Jesus Christ, the ultimate diakonos, the ultimate servant who's come not to be served. And in our marriage, our number one vision is Jesus the great husband, the one who has called us to love each other and, and work together, amen. And I want to call us back to that beautiful vision that Jesus informs everything. He informs work. He, inf he anoints you. He, he sends you. Um, the moment we have other things as the center, as our vision, Jesus will begin to shrink and our vision will begin to get bigger. And every man has a different vision and it becomes confusing. But the vision that we have is Jesus. And the Bible says we should fix our vision, our eyes on Jesus. And so somebody wrote a Christmas card that said, thank you for um, preaching um, uh, Jesus as the center. And together with the eldership team, that is our heart, is uh, wherever you go, whatever you do, if you're in a hospital bed, if you're riding the crest of the wave and life's just fantastic, that you will not forget Jesus. So um, it's a great joy to be preaching this morning. Last week we spoke about giving thanks, the password to the gate. What's the password? Give thanks. I think that was a good <laughs> passage. You know, how do you get into this courts of God? There's a gate into his gates with thanksgiving. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Then the gates open and then you can get into his courts. Before that was worship. And um, I, I want to talk to you this morning about Christ's, um, to prepare yourself for the coming of Jesus and um, it's a, there's a bit of a caveat to it, um, and it's, um, Lord, what do you require of me? Because the preparation for the coming of Jesus meant, as Francis said this morning, heaven was very active, amen? There was a whole lot of things that needed to happen. Democracy says, you're here for me. Uh, the church in America says, what can you do for me? Democracy, which is a wonderful, um, what's it, philosophy, um, has many perils to it. Like, my body is mine, don't you dare tell me what to do with it. Even though uh, we have the right to do what we want with our bodies, we can even um, hack the babies out of our wombs. That is our democratic right. It is fought with problems. The question is, what do you require of us, O oh great God? So the biggest events in the history of the world, the promised Messiah that we'd be coming, there was 4,000 years, God left us in a sense. He didn't, gave us his covenant, but stood back 
and through angels and mediators gave us a covenant, and for 4,000 years, we, we made many mistakes. We, we actually wrecked it. And he said, is that enough time for you to see that you need my help? And in Genesis 3, it was declared that the son born to the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It was prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, so what's that, 3,300 years, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4. It's now approaching 700 years before his coming. It's still a long time. But he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. I, I mean, Isaiah, this messianic prophet, is beginning to say things. How can, how can a virgin be with child? That is against the order of God. And he will be... Um, uh, the virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, or in the Hebrew, God with us. A son, born of a virgin, God with us. And so, if this is the Son of God, he requires an enormous amount of examination. It, it is required of us to find out who is this one proclaimed to be Emmanuel. And so, a bit later in Isaiah 53, he's declared to be the suffering servant. So he's born to a virgin. He will redeem Israel. He's called Prince of Peace, um, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Um, and he's given these names. But then a bit later on, he is called our suffering servant. Isaiah 53 verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Like, Really? There was nothing that we should be attracted to him. In fact, when I got saved, I thought, I don't really want this Jesus because he's like, he's on a cross. I don't really understand or associate myself with a man hanging on a cross. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. It's amazing how we try and dress Jesus. But actually, if you preach the truth, of Jesus, hearts will turn. He was despised and rejected by men. This is Emmanuel. This is Son of God. This is the one born of a virgin, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings, like one from whom men hide their faces. Literally, if you were to see the Messiah, you would look, you would hide your face. You would rather ignore him. You would rather look the other side. You would make as if he didn't exist. Like we see some people on the streets today and we think, oh, like I'd rather not see. The guys that even come to our window, sometimes we think, I'd rather not see that suffering. Hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I mean, I'm not even preaching on this text. Surely he took up our infirmities, this man that was despised, the man of sorrows, the man that wasn't esteemed. Who is this Jesus? I mean, surely it's demanded of us on this planet to find out who he is. In fact, for some of us, our entire lives will be dedicated to thinking about him, loving him, praying him, worshiping him. I'm one of those few. Well, all of us are. <laughs> it is our privilege and joy to say we have found this pearl of great price and we have sold everything and bought the field in which the pearl is. He carries our sorrows, and we consider him stricken by God, 
smitten by him and afflicted, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, who is this promised Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgression. Isn't he the radiance of God's glory? Isn't he the one whom John fell as though dead when he saw him? Isn't his face brighter than the sun? But the prophet is declaring the humanity of Jesus in such a way that he was pierced with thick nails. Boom, his side was pierced. His head was pierced. His feet were pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, his lashes, his beatings, we are healed His body was afflicted and wounded, but he says, I will take your wounds and you will be healed. It's been a long time coming, this Jesus. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, each family member detailed, the fathers, the sons born. And again, God would choose unlikely people, but it's personal for God. For God, it was personal and relational. His people it was, it was personal that he made Adam. It was very personal for God that when he created Adam and even gave them the splendor of Eden, that they chose to side not just with an arbitrary other, but with the enemy of God. It was personal and grievous to God. But he provides everything. And at the appointed time, the Holy Spirit gets active. The angels are deployed. His plan has always been for man, through man. He always has worked through us. Often I thought, well, Lord, you can do it. And God says, I have need of you. I have need of you, um, Joseph. I have need of you, Mary. I have need of you, um, Jonah. I often thought, well, God can do it. No, God is looking even this morning to move through people. He is personal and he is relational. So he's looking for people this morning. He's looking to call you, to deploy you, to to engage with you. He is a relational God. And he places non-negotiable demands upon our lives. Really? Indeed, he does. In fact, the birthing of Jesus wasn't an odd thing where you know, people say, well, maybe he had approached somebody like Mary before and she had said no. Who knows? Maybe there was another Elizabeth and Zechariah that had said no. The Bible doesn't say that. But one wonders how many people said no to the grand plans of God. In Mark chapter 1 verse 2, written as, I will send my messenger, speaking to Jesus, prophesying, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you, Emmanuel, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. I will send. There is God again saying, I'm going I'm to go to somebody and I'm going to send him to prepare the way for you, Jesus. Are you the John the Baptist this morning? Are you saying, Lord, I will, what are your demands? What do you require of me? Uh, there's stuff happening. 2023 is about to happen. What will happen in 2023 where God says, I'm going to deploy you, Chris Bariga. I'm going to deploy you, Daniel. And I, I, I demand you to do this. That's not a cool word today, is it? But I know you're giving me lots of room this morning. Man has tried to save himself. He can't. He has systematically 
and generation by generation messed up. 4,000 years of tragedy. Every single generation has fallen short, has transgressed. Elijah said, I'm no better than my forefathers. Of course you're not. We need the Messiah. Amen? And he's, he's busy being sent. If you have no sin, you have no need of Jesus. If you have no sin, you have no need of him. <laughs> if you have no brokenness, you have no need of him. It may take you 20, 50 60, 70, 80, 90 years. But I hope you do find that you have need of him. Somebody's going to prepare the way for you, Jesus. I'm going to deploy some servants. Like somebody preparing a meal for you. Got to lay the table. It's got to get all the candles lit. It's got to get all the food and cook it and stew it and aromas and, and heat it and knives and forks. In the same way, I need my servants to prepare the way for the Lord. A messenger ahead, a voice of one calling in the desert. That voice didn't come out of nothing. It was an anointed voice. It was a gifted voice. It was an appointed voice calling in the, in the desert. And I often think, Lord, I would have chosen the city square. I would have chosen the temple. I would have chosen the botanic gardens. I would have chosen the city hall. He says, a voice in the desert, please. I demand you to go to be, why the desert? Just go to the desert. Because the desert speaks of rivers in the, in the barren heights. Where there is a desert, there will be streams. And so begins this anointing, this, this voice that's preparing the way. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It was the message that was given to John the Baptist for the preparation of Jesus. God placed his demands on John the Baptist for the preparation for Jesus to come. His spirit was upon this man. God through man calls John the Baptist a baptism of repentance, that was his game. Baptizing in the desert region by the Jordan for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized in the Jordan River. 400 years of silence. 400 years, the, the, the nation just keeps on declining and declining and declining. And by the time John the Baptist comes, he has to say, you brood of vipers to the Pharisees. They are so far gone, these religious leaders, that even this voice of one crying in the desert, this man called John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, that's how deeply it went. And he says this, after me, one more powerful than I. So this is, this is for all of us. We all have this message, in a sense, more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water like we do Sunday in, well, Sundays here but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There is one that is coming that is far more powerful than me. He's majestic, he's anointed, he's eternal, he's sinless, he's obedient. And the Father has asked me to prepare the way for the Lord, says John the Baptist. But he, I'm gonna dunk you in the Jordan, which we can all do, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. But man, if you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, your life will change. Your life will change. You will be empowered. When you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, you yoke yourself to Jesus by His Spirit. Amen? You don't go to church on Sunday and Monday live like a crazy wild guy or gal. 
And so Luke, the um, doctor, he wants, he wants to investigate the story, as we know. And so he says, I have carefully investigated and wrote an orderly account to you, O most excellent Theophilus. He's writing to this guy who's an excellent man. And um, he begins to tell us the story that is intriguing. And it's the time of King Herod of Judea, so he's making careful notes. And there's this couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both uprights in the Lord, observing all the commands and regulations blamelessly. This is a fine couple. This is a religious couple. This is a good couple. But they were barren, number one, and long in years. So I googled how old was Elizabeth. Because she and he have been set aside to send somebody to prepare the way for Jesus. How old was Elizabeth? But they were barren and long in years. In other words, there's two good reasons why God couldn't use them. <laughs> you, you can't use this couple. You can't send somebody through them. They, they, they say the writings outside of Scripture, because Scripture doesn't say, say she was in her 80s. Some specifically say she was 88. Let's say she was in her 80s. So Zechariah, his time has come as priest to burn incense. That's his job. He burns incense in the, uh, in the temple. And the worshipers are praying outside. And uh, the, an angel appears on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was startled and gripped with fear because that's why when people say, I saw an angel last night, I often think, no, you didn't. Because if you see an angel, you normally, you run out of your room as white as a ghost. You are panic-stricken when you see angels. Often I think so. Of course, it's like um, he says, don't fear. He was startled and gripped with fear. Don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. What prayers? There's action in heaven. There's stuff happening. And he gives them eight instructions. So now, this is my point, is that, that would you let the, the yoke of God the demands of God. Are we not servants? Like the rooties, can you move the chairs? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you serve coffee? Can you wash dishes? Can you go to the nations? Our heart as believers is to take his yoke, take his instruction. So this man who's being grafted into the whole preparation of next Sunday, the angel gives him eight instructions. Your wife is going to bear your son, and you're to name him John, instruction one. Instructions two, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. That's more a fact, okay? Point number three, he will be great in the sights of the Lord. Point number four, instruction, he is never to take wine or fermented drink. John, put that wine bottle down. You're not to take that. But, but, but Father, Father Zachariah, Papa, John, Put the bottle of wine away. You, God has need of you. Are you saying don't drink? drink? No, I'm saying John couldn't have any fermented drink. Number five, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. What? He will be filled with the Spirit from birth. Point number six, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to their God. Point number seven, he will go before the Lord in the spirits and in the power of Elijah. I'm busy, says the Lord. Are you listening, Father Zechariah? This is the boy to be born to your very old wife. You've got to go and get busy because you have to produce a child through her. It's quite a thing, isn't it, to be intimate at that age? 
Point number eight, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's his job. He's got to get people ready and prepared for the coming of of the Lord. Zechariah in his moment says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. (laughs) And unfortunately, Gabriel doesn't enjoy that. I'm Gabriel, he says, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. This is all good news, by the way. And you will be silent or you will be dumb. <laughs> and not, why are you so quiet this morning? Come on, highway guys, talk to me. You'll be silent and you'll be dumb until this happens because you do not believe my words. And I'm thinking, Hey, Jesus is my homie, you know. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my older brother. Guys, when God is moving, when God is serious about stuff, won't we receive his instructions? You see, sometimes we live in a world just like whatever I can do. I'm free where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. Now, I actually want to say that in the preparation for Christ and his coming and his visitations, it is earnest. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and for five months she remains in seclusion. Many commentators say they don't know why. There's no reason given, but she might have been embarrassed. Some commentators, other commentators said she would have been fragile. She didn't want to miscarry. She may have miscarried before. We don't know the exact reasons. But in seclusion for five months, she's saying, this boy inside of me. A little while later, the angel Gabriel, the same Numzan of an angel, this heavyweight appears, goes to Mary and says to her, do not be afraid. You are highly favored. This is Luke 126. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. What kind of greeting is this? You will be with child and you will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He will be called the Son of God. He will reign over David's house. His kingdom will never end. How can this be? Mary asked the angel. You think, well, if she also said, like John says, you know, like, oh, you know, how can this be possible? She, in a way, says, no, no, well, I'm, I'm a virgin. How, how can this be? I'm a virgin. This is exactly what you have to be. The angel didn't say that, but you have to be a virgin because the virgin, Isaiah said, you'll be with a child. Your relative, Elizabeth, probably cousins, they they think, is going to have a child in her old age, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary hurries down to Judea, to Zechariah's house, and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, you see, when the demands of God are accepted by the sons and the daughters and the servants of God, incredible things happen. People say, like, is that, I want to know that actually for me and for, for our household, and for you and for Red Point, that we accept the, the mandates of God, amen? That we think, well, Lord, like, you know, I mean, it's embarrassing. 80 to have a child and old age. That's like, what? But God is working. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby in her womb leapt. I saw a video of a lady, um, a lady who had a, a super active child. I mean, it's unbelievable. I thought my wife had an active child in her womb once. We've got, we've got on f- camera her tummy doing this. This lady's tummy did the most unbelievable things. It was almost as if the baby was trying to jump out of her womb. I guess in the same way, 
the baby left in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, this old pregnant woman, don't you love the story, exclaimed. I wish I could get an old lady to come up here and exclaim. Do you want to do it, Jill? <laughs> exclaim an old woman, like shrieked and, and, and loudly exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. She's saying this to Mary, and she's got a child in her own tummy. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Don't you love the story, guys? Is it just me that's enjoying it? How are you, Jill? Like, you know, for us, whatever, you know, a little, little nativity play. She was filled with the Spirit. This baby leapt, this old granny. God is moving unusually, unexpectedly, amen? This is not a moment we're just going to like have a go. This is orchestrated, planned. He, the Spirit, God was watching this woman, Elizabeth, watching Zachariah for years. This young, this old lady and this young lady together would do something amazing for God. I'm trying to invite you into the story of God. Are you prepared to come into it? That's my, it's an invitation today. The sound of your greeting, as it reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. The coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ is the greatest event in human history. Many people will tell you that. The, the, the preparation, the promises, the prophecies, the people, the places, the visitations. Into that woven the heartache of man, his broken state, his self-destruction, his need for redemption. That actually this, that there was going to be an overthrowing of the kingdom of darkness. This little oaky called John that's been filled with the spirit, that's left for joy. This little baby Jesus, they would begin to, what would their job be? To destroy the works of the devil. That's what, that's what, what must I do to be saved? What do you want me to do? You must be born again. That's my instruction. What are your demands, O Lord? He wouldn't arrive unannounced, this Jesus, unprepared for. And if you, if you look at Mary's song, it's actually interesting because when we look at Mary's song, once this young virgin, embarrassed, like not married yet, with child, they would call him an illegitimate child. This is her song. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. But the family was confused. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercies extend to those who fear him. And she goes off. He has brought down the rulers but he has lifted up the humble. And she goes on and this song bursts forth. Zechariah, when his son is born and his mouth is unlocked, he also begins to sing the song. Ordinary people, simple servants. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, John the Baptist. God used them to prepare the way for the greatest events in human history. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 59, they were going to name him after his father, Zacharias. Elizabeth spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's all this background noise. There is no one among your relatives who has that name. You didn't as a Jew just hop in a name. You continue the tradition of your families. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote the name John. The demands of God upon our lives. Paul Tripp tweeted or sent yesterday that baby in the manger came to earth not to sit on a throne, but for our sake to hang on a cross. Jesus, I have demands upon you, my son, that you would redeem mankind. And to that end, not your will be done, but my will, God's will. And he hangs on a tree for us. The story of God and man. My job is to invite you into the story to bring you closer and closer to Jesus. Our job as leaders is to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you. Our job as leaders is to say, lift your hands and worship and let the idols that we tuck under our cloaks and we hide in our garments, as you lift your hands and worship in total surrender, the idols will fall away, as Tula said. That is our job is to get us Close. The story of God and man, it's close, it's intimate, it's personal, it's not cosmic, it's not distant, it's not detached. God is bound and joined himself to us. We are made in his likeness, likeness, we are made in his image. When we have everything, we like the faraway God. <laughs> we love a faraway God when I've got everything. I've got my wife, I've got my kids, I've got my mansion, I've got my job, I've got my holiday homes, I've got my holiday cars, I've got everything I need, I've got good health, and I love it far away, God. And I hope that one day I'll make it to heaven. But when calamity strikes, when disaster strikes, when I am in need, when the doctor says you have to come in because I, we need a meeting with you, ah, pray, where is the far away God? Where is he that distant God? And then people say, oh, where's God? He doesn't care about evil. If he were such a good God, no. What we want to do is we want to bring God in now while we will, amen? We want to say, Lord, I'll be your servant. I'll be Elizabeth. I'll be Mary. I'll be Zechariah. I'll be John the Baptist. Can't be Jesus, but I'll be any one of those servants. I'll be Saul. I'll be Joshua. I want you here when I'm well. I want to serve you now. They don't need God in Australia. They've got cricket. They don't need God in many of these nations, all these first world nations, that the Satan is visiting the, the, the first world and killing the babies. One of the things that you know that Satan is around, he takes the babies out. His name is Moloch, and you sacrifice your kids to them. You burn your kids. You throw, that actually there are many practices before Christ where kids were thrown, particularly women girls, uh, uh, Daughters were thrown into the sea. They were sacrificed. This thing of just hacking babies out your womb is a visitation by Satan himself in the first world. And God says, I will give you over if you want. You don't touch us and don't touch our babies. And if God were to close the womb of America or the first world, that would be a big day. I'm going into prophetic mode. Let me come back to my notes. God is personal and he's relational. 
and he calls us his bride and his body and his family and his own and his elect and his holy ones and the apple of his eye. He says, you're my son, Israel, my chosen one. So God places loving demands upon us in order to fulfill his purposes. He said, okay, I'll take my hands off for 4,000 years. I'll give you a law which you won't be able to keep and I will be distant and they will take the, my presence will go and you'll get on. And so we're a people now that can be filled with the spirit. We're a people that's saying, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. What do you require of me, God? Are there any demands you have of me? Is that, is that okay? Some of the doctor says anesthetize this guy because we're not going to be able to operate on him. So when even the doctor says put him to sleep, sometimes God has to put us to sleep to do stuff with us, amen? And we yield. In order to save us, God makes demands upon us. The definition of a demand is this. To ask for something in a way that shows that you do not expect to be refused. Can I read that again? It said, the, the, my boss demanded. Well, the idea of a demand, which is the word I'm using, even though I'll read it to you in Psalm 25, is to ask for something of you, Mr. Hardy, in a way that shows that you do not expect to be refused. If God would ask me something, like these four people I've mentioned, you will not say no. Five, actually. Joseph, take her to be your wife. <laughs> I'll save her from embarrassment. I mean, she's like pregnant. I don't know what's happening. Take her to be your wife. <sighs> your life would be changed. The Lord said to Abraham, this is an instruction because it's from Abraham to Jesus. If you read uh, 42 generations, each generation all the way to Jesus, he says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. What? I can't just leave my people. This is my kindred. This is my protection. This is my livelihood. This is my clan. This is my, my community. I can't just leave. You didn't just leave like today. You can just hop across to New Zealand or to Mozambique if you want to go and live there. I, and when you go, just go. Do I go out the entrance gate or the exit gate? Just choose. And when you get there, I'll show you. Gee, that's quite a request. I will make you into a great nation. Well, how can you make me into a great nation? Because you take me out of my nation. In fact, I will become isolated in that nomadic culture, probably killed, as we saw Lot was chased by ten kings or five kings. And so it made no sense. And I will bless you. Well, you don't know, how can you bless me in a vacuum, God? There's no people around. I'm, I'm, I'm vulnerable, secluded. I don't even have a child. I'm not even a father. I'm not a grandfather. You want to make me into a great nation? Can I be a great grandfather rather than a great nation? Just that's all I want. He says, follow me, obey me. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Isn't that amazing, guys? Isn't that an amazing situation into a great nation? And you will be a blessing. This Jesus. I've got an article here, if I can find it. Did it run away? The World Without Christ, written to the Washington Post, the, the Washington Times. A world without Christ. So this, this editor examines what a world without Christ would, I've often thought a world without Jesus. Just very quickly, it's one or two of the things he says. Various towering intellectuals even wish that Christ had never been born. Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, 
who separately inspired and influenced the rise of murderous totalitarian regimes in Russia and Germany, both condemned Christianity and religion in general. For Marx, religion was the opium of the people. Nietzsche said Christianity was the greatest and of all imaginable corruptions. History shows that the Christian church has brought about more changes for the advancement and benefit, this is written to American audience, benefit of people than any other force or movement. Non-believing, secular-minded people might be surprised by the achievements of committed Christians. Before Christ, human life was cheap, expendable all over the world. In the Americas, the Near East, Africa, the Middle East, and the Far East, child sacrifice was a common phenomenon. Babies, particularly females, who were considered inferior, were regularly abandoned. Author George Grant points out, before the explosive and penetrating growth of medieval Christian influence, the primordial evils of abortion, infanticide, abandonment, and exposure were normal parts of everyday life. That changed in the West with the 6th century Christian Roman declaration, um, Roman uh, people. A declaration of independence in which all people were declared with equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Christian women were most influential in getting child labor laws passed. Methodist Francis Willard inspired millions of Americans to support women's right to vote, etc., etc. Suffice to say that both at home and around the world would no doubt be quantitatively worse today if Christ had never been born and Christianity had not become the greatest spiritual force ever to advance. And so it goes on. Jesus has changed many things. Abraham, I'm placing my deposit. Everyone, you'll be a blessing to all nations. All nations know of Abraham. Muslims, Christians, Jews, they know of the birth of Jesus. How do I land this talk? I go to page four. Abraham, yes, Lord. You're the father of faith. Yes, Lord. I demand of you, take your son, your only son, the son you love, and go and offer him as a sacrifice. Immediately, he did it. Pointing to the cross, pointing to that day. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 25 verse 10 says this as I land. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. For those who keep the demands of his covenant. I watched an ordination last week of uh, two men that you know him. One is Stu Dooley, the other one is Tyler Cockrum. There were two men who were ordained. I know both of them, I know Stu quite well, and I know Tyler fairly well. And both of them separately have said to me, hey, I struggle in church, struggle this, struggle that, deconstruct my faith, I don't know what I believe, I want her to leave, et cetera, et cetera. All sorts of, last Sunday, they accepted the ordination to be shepherds in the house of God, which for many people is like this very elite and privileged thing. They don't know what awaits them. <laughs> They don't know that they will weep many tears. They don't know that they will make mistakes. They don't know that they will say, can I just be my own person for a bit? Can I just go to the beach and go wild and drive at 120 miles per hour, which is a lot faster than 120 k's an hour? They don't know what they're asking themselves to do. But I actually, I sat there with a great sense of joy and admiration in my heart for Chris and Merrick. I thought they have said to these guys, 
we're going to lay hands on you and the demands of God will come upon you. And they both got up and spoke beautifully about surrendering to the call of God in their lives. Would you stand with me, please? Quite a strong message pre-Christmas. What's under the tree? A banana. (laughs) Or maybe a Ford Mustang. I don't know, a real one for some of you. That would be nice. There is no better place than to live under the direct will, decrees, demands of God. Amen? That is why Jesus came. And as much as I'm a man that said, uh, not so quickly, Lord, not so quickly, not so quickly, and skirted and danced around, even as a saved man, eventually I said, okay, Lord, I surrender. I'm yours. 